0: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Hi, and welcome to the preview of Season 16. I'm here with Graham Shedd, our estimable executive producer. Hi, Graham.
1: Hi there. Estimable, huh? <laughs> yeah,
0: full of, worthy of esteem.
1: <laughs> okay, we're going to run over some of the things that we're going to be covering in Season 16 of Clear and Vivid, and uh, your guests going to range from looking for life on other worlds to how to put together words to make poetry, uh, for what it's like to discover you can no longer smile, to how to play a guitar on the international Space Station, mm. and from how successful movements from social change usually require careful incubation before going public to how the next generation to follow ours can confront climate change with knowledge rather than fear. But we start, with? Michael Keaton.
0: And you know, I love to talk with other actors because it's a form of communication that I'm steeped in. And obviously I've been doing it all my life and I like to see how they do it. So I was really glad to be able to talk with the, the extraordinary actor, Michael Keaton. And he told me about the roundabout path that he took. And it's one that we all often take a roundabout path in an acting career. It was an unusual beginning for uh, such a fine, dramatic actor to start out in stand-up comedy.
2: And he told me how that went. I was in college, and I had already taken a drama class, and I had never read plays before. You know, there were classic plays, and it would discuss plays. And I I never did that. And that was interesting to me. And then I, 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 I took another theater class, and it was more geared toward acting and i auditioned for a play and got it and wasn't really good in it and it, it no bells nothing went off and i was like that was okay it was an okay experience <laughs> and then i and then i uh, t- started taking some class but i was writing comedy i started writing comedy then too because i i just loved it so much and so when i i was doing a play in Pittsburgh, but i was simultaneously working at a public broadcasting station doing, like, they've you know, not maintenance work, but I worked on the crew. And I was, a friend of mine told me about a club. He said, you ought to get down and do your, do, you, you're funny, you ought to go do some stuff down there. So I went down to the jazz club and they wanted nothing to do with me. Uh, so <laughs> I thought that
0: was going to be the discovered in the drugstore moment.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was more of an annoyance. And, everything <laughs> <laughs> and so I was doing stand-up, and so I was going back and forth to New York because I thought I knew some people who were in the theater, and I thought, well, I'll go into the theater, and I'll, I'll. But I love comedy, and I'm going to do both, and I did for a while. I was, ma- I was, I wasn't really making a living in stand-up. I get, you know, a little bit here and there, and then I. And so I, I realized that if I was really gonna be really good at anything I didn't have the capacity to do both so like I said I think my, I think in my gut I will really, be because even in stand-up, I I really admire a well-structured joke and no you know no one no maybe no one well very few people wrote jokes as well as Larry Delbart from, from oh movies. yeah I mean they were those are like gems those structures were structured real beautifully and but I didn't do that. You know, I, mo- I performed. I almost performed like a small story, and I don't know what I
0: did. You know, but that, it's a, man, I want to, to tell me what your idea is about this. My impression is what I didn't see much of your work when you were starting as a stand up comic, but I've seen it on video since. Mm. And it seems to me that it was the kind of comedy you did that fed into your ability to be such a terrific actor now because you. We're telling a story as a character, yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't Henny Youngman's one-liners,
2: right? It, it was an opportunity to have a stage, and I didn't have to I didn't have to audition for anything. I mean, I said I got the stage for fifteen minutes, twenty <laughs> yeah. minutes. But I, you know, I got the I got the show, and so I could create my own. and I could try to do characters, or I would do little stories or things that observational things or things that happened to me because it was really me taking advantage of the club. Not to act so much, but kind of, yeah, perform.
0: I think it was the kind of stand-up he did that was important. He was playing a character always. He was telling stories. He was acting it out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one-liners. You know, for, if you, for those of you who remember Henny Youngman, he was a <laughs> comedian whose jokes, his jokes didn't need character or story, just a little timing. For instance, just as Off-Broadway was starting up in tiny, offbeat theaters, one of his gags was, I got in a cab, I said to the driver, take me to an Off-Broadway theater. He said, you're in one. (laughs) Did you ever do stand-up? No, no. I I did occasionally
1: tell stories. Well, I've heard you tell stories on the stage.
0: Well, but I mean, it like, I'd, I'd, I'd be describing something at a charity benefit or something, and I'd, mm-hmm. I'd tell it as a funny story. So I used it like a theatrical monologue.
1: And I've heard you say that there's nothing like getting a laugh from the audience, right?
0: Oh, boy, it, it transforms you. Huh. You start out awash in the laughter, and then you can't wait for the next one.
1: And you got your first hit when you were nine.
0: Yeah, I was first hit with laughter with standing next to my father doing an Abbott and Costello routine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a one-liners. No, no, those are those
0: are intricate little (laughs) sketches. They actually involve a bit of acting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Uh, Next on clear and vivid is actually a first as you pointed out when you introduced the guest, the mother and daughter, together.
0: Mother and daughter together and in the same field, working on the same project.
1: That's exactly right. They're involved in one of the most exciting and and, literally far-reaching explorations (laughs) we've ever done, which is searching for life on other planets. Both Natalie Battaglia and her daughter Natasha were up before dawn on Christmas Day, Uh, for the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. And they spent the next month on pins and needles as the telescope slowly unfurled itself on its way to a spot about a million miles away. It made it, and in a few months now, it'll start observing the universe as it's never been seen before. And Natalia Battaglia, mom, has already led the team that used an earlier telescope to discover most of the known planets out there. And she knows how very unlike our own solar system those planets can be.
3: It's the stuff of science fiction. It's it's science fiction come to life. There are planets that have oceans larger than the Pacific, made of molten rock. There are planets that are the age of the galaxy itself. There are planets orbiting not one but two stars. Um, you know, two stars rising in the east and setting in the west, kind of changing positions in a pas de deux across the sky. So there's this incredible diversity of planets, and and more, most importantly. The most common type of planet that we know about right now is a kind we don't have in our solar system. It's a planet that's intermediate between the tiny terrestrials that orbit close to the sun and the big gas giants that orbit far away, these planets are intermediate, so we don't even have a language to describe them. We refer to them as super-Earths or sub-Neptunes or mini-Neptunes, but really that just underscores our ignorance about the nature of these planets. And, and that's the class of planets that we're going to be spending a lot of time studying with Webb.
1: Natasha Battaglia, daughter, will be one of the leaders of the effort looking at the atmospheres of exoplanets to see if they show signs of life. You asked both her and her mom what made their research so personal for them
4: personally, it's you know it's not just our lives too this these questions of our our place in the galaxy and the universe have been asked for centuries. and so the two of us are just building on this like hundreds of other people have thousands of other people have. and so I don't know for me for me personally, I think being part of something that is so much bigger than yourself is, is really profound and exciting. It's such a special thing to be able to put a piece of your your passion into this much larger picture.
3: I mean, it gives meaning to my life in a very visceral way. One night I'm out running in the dark, it was dark, and I look up at the sky and look at the stars, and in that microsecond, without thinking. I saw those dots of lights, not as stars, but as planetary systems. So imagine when one day we have the same type of an answer, but for life. And we look up in the sky and we see not that kind of cosmic loneliness, that extreme humility and feeling of insignificance, but we see a universe replete with life, I think that's going to fundamentally change our perspective. So that's one of the reasons, one of the things that drives me. I I also think that by studying other planets, we will learn something significant about how to sustain life on planet Earth. And I think that that's really important.
0: Back here on Earth, I've always been interested in how social movements get started, how anything new gets started. But there's somebody that we talked with on the show, Gall Beckerman, who's a very astute guy who studied how movements get started, social movements, how they get started, how they gather up steam and move on. So Gall Beckerman has identified a point early in the process, which is a time of quiet, thoughtful incubation. But the problem is, he says, we don't have time for that now with social media. There's no chance now to try out crazy ideas on one another in a very open exchange without criticism or some kind of snark crawling
5: in. I think what I had come to observe over the last 10 or 15 years especially are were social movements that seem to sort of flare up very quickly into the sky, grab all of our attention and then sort of seem to fizzle. And I wondered if there was a kind of a step missing in in, in the process of their development, something that wasn't allowing them to be as sustainable as they might otherwise be. And when I looked historically, it seemed that there always was this sort of period of, you know, the title of my book is The Quiet Before, this moment where people could come together, strategize, set out an agenda figure out their differences. Sometimes you have people coming with wildly different ideas about ideology and um, you know how a movement should be structured, what their goals should even be, a place to sort of hash all of that out. And it occurred to me that it's just, it's a very necessary sort of uh, environment that a group of activists needs to be in, and that it might be one that's being skipped entirely these days, just because social media gives us this tool, this incredible tool to mobilize very quickly with massive amounts of people. And this sort of space, we can call it, um, it's a space for, you know, for lack of a better word, I use the word incubation. I don't love the word incubation because I feel that Silicon Valley has kind of co-opted that word Hmm. incubation (laughs) and uh, and turned it into like meaningless mush. And not to, not to mention chicken farmers. Well, that too. (laughs) But incubation seems the right word because incubation to me speaks of a process that has to happen with a certain amount of heat and closeness and intimacy where you can really share ideas and dream together and argue and debate. And that has to happen in a space that's not big and public and performative, and where everybody can shame everybody else, it, it demands those certain conditions.
1: Gaul had a lot of great examples of the quiet before, including how a long exchange of letters among a group of men, and they were all men in 17th century Europe, figured out that the Mediterranean was actually a thousand miles shorter than people thought it was. But the most dramatic example he had to me was how white supremacists who marched in Charlottesville quietly went about planning that event that looked like a spontaneous event when it happened.
0: They seem to be a model of polite behavior as they're preparing for what becomes a scene of ugliness and violence.
5: That was fascinating, fascinating and a little bit scary to be honest, because I spent, I spent uh, a long time reading their chats about thousands and thousands of their messages from this closed chat room that a, a bunch of different groups, white supremacist groups, had leading up to the Charlottesville protest in 2017. Um, I had there was some group that sort of hacked into uh, into the 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 server that they were using to have these conversations but it was this incredible snapshot uh, into what what a group can get from having a, a, a more close space from not using Twitter and what they had was a place to really uh, first of all there was a lot of earnestness amongst them you know it wasn't like the the snarky, jokey tone, you know, that we've kind of associate with their public face. It was people who really were trying to figure out how to recruit more White Americans to their point of view, and they thought a lot. They were thinking very granular, in a granular way, about things like optics. You know what? What should we be wearing? What should we be saying? What words should we not be using? Should we have tattoos? What kind of flags? What are which our flags look like? There was no upvoting or favoriting or liking anything. It was just an ongoing conversation. And so, a little bit like we were saying before, you know, the value that every person added to what they contributed was uh, can you keep the conversation going so it was really quite helpful to them and i, I had very many moments where i thought i would love for progressive groups to, to have a similar sort of space i mean it's a funny thing to say but you know but I, I i really felt that it could be very useful to a different sort of group that had a more sort of pro-social uh, agenda than these guys did Another great guest
0: in our lineup is Sarah Rule. Sarah's a wonderful playwright. She's the author, for instance, of In the Next Room, or The Vibrator Play, which opened in 2009. It's about Victorian times when the vibrator was used by some doctors to cure the imaginary condition in women called hysteria. But at a crucial time in the life of the play, Sarah experienced a very real medical condition of her own. As a playwright, of course, she's a really good communicator. But one of the ways that we all communicate very subtly is with our faces. And in the time just before the play opened on Broadway,
1: she actually, in a way, lost her face. And it was also at the time when she was about to give birth to twins.
4: The twins came as something of a a surprise, an abundant welcome surprise. I already had an older daughter. And then... I went on bed rest, which seemed kind of wonderfully Victorian, given that the the play on Broadway was about 19th century hysteria. And then uh, I got a condition called cholestasis of the liver, which can be quite scary for the, for the fetuses um, because bile is leaking into your bloodstream and it can kill the babies. So I delivered kind of on a razor's edge at 36 weeks. The babies were miraculously healthy. And then I got a condition called Bell's palsy, where this side of my face, um, or for the for the listener, the left side of my face was paralyzed. And for most Bell's palsy sufferers, it goes away pretty quickly um, with no intervention. And I just happened to be on a very, very slow boat. So the book is in some ways an examination of what it is to have your body betray you and also a meditation on um, art and motherhood and life.
0: How did you first know you had Bell's palsy? Was it looking in a mirror or how did you know?
4: Well, it was sort of a funny story. There was a lactation consultant in the room and she was teaching me how to do something called the football hold where you hold, you know, two babies like this under your arm, like footballs.
0: I didn't know that. you nurse two at the same time?
4: Yeah, you can. I mean... Don't recommend it, honestly. Uh, and I'm not very athletic, so the football hold sort of eluded me. But she looked at me sort of curiously while I was while I was nursing, and she said, "Your eye looks a little droopy." And I thought, "Well, that's kind of rude." Um, and, and I think I made some joke about um, my Irish ancestry and how when we drink too much, our eyes are droopy. Um, And she said, no, it's not that. Go look in the mirror. So I looked in the mirror, and in fact, the side of the face had completely fallen down. Um, And then a neurologist was called. I called my husband, who's a doctor, and he said, have the neurologist come. The neurologist uh, was worried about a stroke, uh, and it turned out it was Bell's palsy.
0: So it must have been scary to know that your face wasn't expressing what you felt especially when you looked at your newborn babies.
4: It was really a nightmare. And, I mean, you understand it completely as an actor, the idea that your face isn't expressing what you want it to. And for the babies, I just wanted so much for them to know I was communicating love and joy to them. And in some ways, mothers teach children how to smile. You know, you're teaching... Baby's facial expressions while you hold them so for all of the kind of petty vanity i might have felt i think it was really that was the hardest thing for me was not being able to smile at the babies
1: it took several years of physical therapy and a a lot of blind alleys before sarah began to regain her smile and the first thing that noticed it oddly enough was her iphone
0: that's an amazing moment that really stuck out in your story (laughs) That facial recognition on the iPhone Mm -hmm. is so particular that it thought you were a different person.
4: Yeah. And it happened maybe three times or so in the course of, you know, my getting better. And then it just happened again last week, weirdly. So who knows? I mean, there's no objective measure of, you know, Bell's palsy improvement. And my physical therapist will test my muscles and sort of say, oh, you're you're about... you're probably at about 70% um, and I'll take it.
0: What about babies? Do you do you see a difference in the re- response you get from babies when you try to connect with them?
4: Well, here's the thing. I never I didn't try for a while. I mean I think I there were a lot of ways I was hiding and turtling down and not trying to make connections because I found it awkward with strangers. So I remember when I first felt I could smile spontaneously and kind of show it on my face, I would smile at babies like a crazy lunatic lady. I got so much pleasure out of it. You know, women would be clutching at their babies, worried that I was going to kidnap them, because I'd be ogling them.
1: (laughs) Another of your guests, who's wonderfully clear and vivid, is the Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. He was the commander of the International Space Station on one of his three forays into space. And here he is scaring you by, by talking about what it's like to walk in space.
0: I scare easily, but walking in space, just, just the words make, put, send me into a slight panic.
6: Walking in space is is a fantastic human experience. Like, I, I've got to do some pretty interesting things. I, I lived at the bottom of the ocean for a while. And
0: uh, yeah, I, how long were you at the bottom of the ocean? A few weeks.
6: And, and, and I, um, you know, I was in the delivery room when my wife gave birth to each of our three children. That's, that's an amazing experience. But to be outside on a spacewalk with the Earth silent and and bulging and textured and colored and 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 then the the eternity of the blackness of the bottomlessness of it and you're this little pipsqueak nothing out there in between the two of them it's a mind-bogglingly beautiful experience to be out there to see that Um, and normally in sort of contrary to what you just said, you hold on tight. In fact, I think if you could have seen my hand through my spacewalking glove, my knuckles would have been white at first because, you know, that's the <laughs> only thing that's connecting you to this ship apart from a little clothesline to keep you from drifting off. But after a while, you get good at it like anything else. And you start to move around kind of um, elegantly and and ballet like it's like a new skater versus you know uh, someone who knows how to skate and then i found after a while i would just be holding on with a gentle pressure between my thumb and a couple of fingers and then i would get myself perfectly still next to the ship and then let go
1: chris is best known for his use of social media to give the rest of us earthbound people a sense of what it's like to be weightless in space including demonstrations of how to open a can of peanuts and how to clean your teeth but his best-known video with tens of millions of views is his performance of David Bowie's Space Oddity. What most of us who've loved that video don't know is that playing a guitar in space is a lot harder than Chris made it look.
6: There's been a guitar on board space stations since the 1970s. The the Soviets had one, and then the Russians. When I went to help build their space station in the 90s on the Mir space station, they had a guitar up there, so... People have figured out, you know, sort of how to stabilize a guitar. And then when I get up to the space station on my third flight, yeah, I, after I'd been there like a day, I'm going, hey, where's the guitar up here? Um, <laughs> you know, because there's one permanently up there. Uh, and dug it out and, and then tried to figure out and learn how to play it. And and sort. it's a little bit, Alan, if for the folks that play guitar, it, picture this. you You go into your living room. And you put your guitar somewhere near the wall and then stand on your head. Stand on your head next to the wall. You know, maybe leaning your feet on the wall and stand on your head for about three hours until the blood is just pounding in your head and you're, you've got those big veins up the side of your neck and you, you know, you got that big one down your forehead and you're, you're congested and your tongue is feeling a little swollen. And then while you're upside down, pick the guitar up and play it while you're upside down without any strap or anything. That's what it felt like to play and sing up there. It's just so weird and different without gravity, with not pushing the fluid out of your head. It's hard to sing, it's hard to play. So yeah, it, it took me a while to, to sort of relearn a skill that I already had on earth. But it did hit a silver lining because my sinuses were always congested because there's no gravity to pull <laughs> it down. Um, and and my it was a little easier to hit the high notes, I, I found, which for covering Bowie, you know, if you think about space oddity, Um, It it actually worked to my advantage a little bit to not have a deeper register.
0: You know, it might be fun for the people listening, if they're not among the hundreds of millions who have already heard it, to play a few bars of you singing in space. Is that okay? Oh,
6: yeah, sure. This is Ground Control to Major Tom's.
0: It was great to have Hope Jaron back on the show, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It was like old times.
1: <laughs> She's terrific. And she was talking to us from Oslo.
0: She talked to us the first time, almost three years ago, I think, when she had written the book called Lab Girl, which became a huge hit around the world. And it was autobiographical about her growing up in her father's lab and becoming a scientist through that early introduction. But it also is, in a way, the private life of plants because, in a way, she, she, sees, she helps us see the life of plants from the inside. It's like the autobi- autobiography of a plant, in a way.
1: Yeah, she made plants clear and vivid.
0: She's certainly clear and vivid herself and loves writing. But now she has a new book. And I, I asked her the question that all authors get asked, why did you want to write this book? And she had a really interesting answer.
7: When you write a book, you have to be prepared that the only thing you're going to get out of it is the fun you have writing it. Because um, if you write it, there's no guarantee it's going to get published. And if it gets published, there's no guarantee anybody's going to buy it. And if anybody buys it, there's no guarantee they're going to like it. So at the end of the day, you better be darn sure that you wrote it for your own reasons. So I did that, and lo and behold, a couple years later, a lot of people read it, (laughs) and then I was faced with the question, what now? You know, and I thought, well, what if people do read what I write? Well, I better sit down and think what's the most important thing I have to say. You know, after doing this and being in the world and doing this particular job, what? what do i really think about the biggest questions before us you know who we are how we got here what's coming and and where we fit in and i thought you know if i've got if i've got one more stab at this that's what i'm going to write about and um i took the years and i sat down and i said you know this is it i uh i've been teaching this stuff you know to people 50 people at a time. <laughs> and it's fun, and it's great, but it's not very efficient. And I thought, <laughs> I thought if I can teach this stuff, just the best of the best of the best of what I've come up with. Um, The stuff that, you know, when I'm teaching a class, I see the spark go off in people's eyes. You know, I remember those things, things I said, or things I communicated that That meant something to somebody. If I just concentrate all that into a book, what will it be? What will it look like? And then again, I'll be able to say, I did that. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't waste the fact that, that somebody started to listen to me. I, I did what I thought was the right thing. And so I'm very proud of the book. And, you know, it's now got its own life. And, uh, uh, it's really, and here I am talking to you. So. Follow your dreams. You'll never know what happens, right?
1: So her new book, uh, The Story of More, is how our generation has both hugely benefited from a vast expansion of food and energy production, but in doing so, we've set the planet on an unsustainable path. She finished the original version of the book, The Story of More, just as the pandemic hit. And she spent the last couple of years writing a version of the book expressly aimed at the
7: next generation. I think there has to be a large-scale reckoning with the concept of consumption. What do we use in order to make our lives work? If we didn't use it, what parts of our lives would still work? I mean, I think that's at the root of it. I think that's something that's going to affect us personally on a day-to-day basis. And it's huge. You know, one book is not going to give us the answers to these things but we have to start you know i i really feel like my duty as an educator is to give people the tools that will be useful to them um i don't know what the answer is to healing the earth and getting it back on the road to being a place that will be able to shelter and feed at a minimum, you know, the population that's coming. So I hear a lot of talk about fear, and I get asked a lot about fear. Should I be afraid of this? How afraid should I be? Um, Is the world going to end? Uh, is, Is it really as terrible as I hear? I think when we're afraid, it it paralyzes us into doing nothing. And that's absolutely the opposite of what we want here. I also think that knowledge is the only thing that really drives out fear. So if I have a student or a friend or someone in a cafe say, I'm afraid of climate change, I don't know what's going to happen. I have to be honest and say, I'm a scientist who's worked on this for decades, and I don't know what's going to happen either. Here are the things that I'm worried about. And try to pass on information with humility and with honesty and trust that the person you're talking to knows best how to use that information in their own lives.
0: I was really delighted to have as a guest Billy Collins, the poet. I love his poetry, and so do millions of other people. He was the U.S. Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003. And I actually took his class once. Did you know that, Graham? No, I didn't know that. I knew that you somehow
1: knew him, but I didn't know why. Yeah, and
0: taking that class really expanded the way I use words when I write. They they haven't called yet about the laureate thing, but I think they have my number. <laughs> he's a wonderful writer, wonderful poet. And he's extremely accessible.
7: Yeah, yeah.
0: And yet as accessible as he is, he's full of surprises. In fact, I think one of the chief ways his poetry works is that he even surprises himself. Mm-hmm. Or or rather in some funny way the poem itself surprises him. But but before I ask him about that, I wanted to get basic. I'd like to know how you answer a stupidly basic question. What makes a poem a poem?
8: Well, um, the only surefire definition of a poem I've heard is by Henry Taylor, and he said a poem is an arrangement of lines whose length is determined by some principle other than the width of the page. In other words, the lines don't go out to the end of the page. (laughs) That's how most people recognize, visually at least, that a poem is a poem. Um, uh, there are other def- many other definitions, but that <laughs> one you, you can't take apart. I know um, uh, Christopher Ricks said that um, in prose, you would have the phrase, uh, the silence of the green fields, right? In mm-hmm. poetry, you could have the phrase, the green silence of the fields, uh, so in poetry, silence can have colors. So there's a more of an imaginative freedom in poetry. And one more from Kenneth Koch, who, uh, who also gave prose and poetry as a contrasting example. So he said, uh, prose would be no dogs allowed on the beach. Poetry would be no dogs or logs allowed on the beach, no poodle, however trim, no dachshund unable to swim, and <laughs> in, in, in that you see that the words are enjoying the the company of each other through rhyme and humor um and, and and i think that's another definition of poetry the words are happy to be in each other's company in a way that they don't have to be in prose
0: yeah you often talk about words in poems as if they have consciousness the poem starts to want to talk about this the oh, words yeah. like to be together.
5: I How does so. that
0: actually work in your brain? I mean, do you...
8: <laughs> <laughs> if I told are you, you, being, I'd, have you to, I'd have to kill myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I mean, do you do you actually experience the poem talking to you in some funny way, or are you being poetic when you say that?
8: No, I feel the poem having a, a certain willfulness or a certain... Uh, the poem might take on a kind of whimsicality about where it's going, so the poem might want to go in a direction that you hadn't anticipated, and that really is the, the beginning of the real fun of poetry, is when the poem is shifting and in, in, uh, a little out of your control, and it has a, a way of—it uh, it develops an interest in itself that you're not even aware of. Uh, it develops an intelligence um, along the way, sometimes. If you're lucky, if, it, if not, it just ends up in the wastebasket. Of course, we had Billy read several of his delightful poems. My
1: favorite, which as the owner of, or I should say servant of several dogs growing
8: older, was one from his latest book. My latest book is called Whale Day. And so here's another poem about a dog. It's called, uh, the title is Walking My 75-Year-Old Dog. She's painfully slow, so I often have to stop and wait while she examines some roadside weeds, as if she were reading the biography of a famous dog. And she's not a pretty sight anymore, dragging one of her hind legs, her coat too matted to brush or comb, and a snout white as a marshmallow. We usually walk down a disused road that runs along the edge of a lake whose surface trembles in a high wind and is slow to ice over as the months grow cold. We don't walk very far before she sits down on her worn haunches and looks up at me with her roomy eyes. Then it's time to carry her back to the car. Just thinking about the honesty in her eyes, I realize I should tell you, she's not really 75. She's 14. I guess I was trying to appeal to your sense of the bizarre, the curiosities of the sideshow. I mean, who really cares about another person's dog? Everything else I've said is true, except the part about her being 14. I mean, she's old, but not that old, and it's not polite to divulge the true age of a lady.
0: So that's just a bit, a smattering, a dollop of what we have to look forward to in the coming season. As it always is here, it's a collection of some of the most interesting people in the world sitting down for a good meaty conversation or a hearty vegan conversation, as the case may be. See you next week.
1: Be sure to tune in for Michael Keaton.